Welcome to FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, and today we're bringing up the half century, episode number 50. To mark this special occasion, we've brought in the big guns today. With me in the co-pilot seat is the IAF's CEO and President, Tim Adams, and we're at the FDIC offices in Washington, where our special guest today is FDIC Chair, Yelena McWilliams. Yelena, thank you for hosting us here, and welcome to FRT. Thank you for having me. It's a delightful experience to be with you. Thank you. Elena, I thought I knew a bit about you from your work on the Senate Banking Committee and and also when you were Chief Legal Officer at Fifth Third Bank, but I must confess my ignorance that it was only when I read your op-ed in the American Banker last week that I learned that you were previously a lawyer in Silicon Valley working with startups and early stage enterprises. So I guess your focus on the potential of innovation is not a new thing at all. The initiatives you've launched here, like FDI Tech, the, the new innovation lab, I guess for you, is that really a natural continuation for the strategic focus that you've already had and now brought to the FDIC? In a way, it is. It's a natural evolution of what I experienced as a relatively young lawyer in Silicon Valley in the early 2000s. As I came out of law school, Sir Baines Oxley just became the law of the land. And I remember we had at a law firm early and emerging technology startups. And as we were looking to fit those companies into the existing securities laws, some of which have not been changed for half a century. I remember making calls to different uh, departments within the Securities and Exchange Commission and asking, well, how about this? How do you want us to disclose something like this? You know, how are you looking at both the disclosure and compliance requirement for these companies that didn't exist when these laws were written? They didn't exist. The technology they utilized did not exist. And quite often I was on the other end of a phone line from an eager, good attorney who was just struggling to fit that framework into the new and modern companies that we were dealing with in terms of their technologies. And and that prompted my interest in, is our regulatory system ripe for change? And are we able to evolve on the regulatory side as the technology evolves? Wonderful. Well, thank you for uh, being with us here today. So let me follow up on that great intro, bringing that perspective into a very important job here in Washington and important to the financial sector, not only in the United States, but as a trendsetter globally. Where are the opportunities for innovation? How are you taking what you have learned and what you have acquired over these many years, your experience, and where do you see the opportunities with respect to innovation? There are ample opportunities around us. And some of those opportunities, frankly, if the community banks do not avail themselves, they're going to have a more difficult uh, time surviving in the competitive economy, especially in the global economy. And uh, one, of the, one of the aspects that we're looking at is how quickly are community banks able to reach new customers, reach new consumers, broaden their base. And quite often, they are unable to go far above and beyond their geographic footprint. They simply don't have either the technology or the marketing allowances to reach far beyond their geographic footprint. So when you think about how can they reach new customers, you have to look at the use of technology they're able to employ. And so we are seeing innovative channels for fintech companies to step in and basically partner up with these banks, especially community banks, to be able to expand their customer base and also to allow them to reach credit decisions more quickly, to be more agile in a a very competitive and fast marketplace, and to, I think in the long run, have an opportunity to survive. And what role do you play in facilitating community banks' access to technology? Are you a disseminator of information? Are you a matchmaker? Do you bring vendors with banks? How do you facilitate that? I'll have to ask my chief of staff if I can add matchmaker to my titles. I like it. Uh, the, the, the role that we are trying to play is to be a conduit. 
And a conduit in a sense that um, these small banks uh, right now don't know if they can innovate. There are two primary reasons why they may not innovate on their own. One is the cost. It is prohibitively expensive to come up with a new concept, develop it to uh, an end to a prototype, and then be able to run with a prototype. And along those lines, you're going to your regulatory agency, in this case, the FDIC, and asking us, hey, will you like this? Do you think this is going to work? Are you going to approve of this? And along the way, because we don't know exactly what this prototype is going to look like in the end, we're not giving you a yes or no. And it makes it a whole lot more difficult to innovate if you don't know if your end product will be something that your regulators will be willing to approve of or not. And so our job right now is to bridge that divide, to provide regulatory certainty. We cannot provide uh, the panacea for the, the cost of innovation. Banks will have to do that on their own. But if they have some certainty on the regulatory front, I think they will be more likely to innovate and to go down that path. You bring up a good point. Some of the large institutions, the money center institutions, are spending tens of billions on technology. Is there a technology arms race in the financial sector here? And to the point, how do we help community banks stay in the game? How do they know about technology? How do they acquire it? And what can institutions like the IF do? Um, so going back to your comment about a technological arms race, there's definitely a race. And uh, it's, it's on many different fronts. One is how can we use technology to protect ourselves? And so it plays hugely in the cybersecurity space, in the, also in the Bank Secrecy Act anti-money laundering space. And this is where some of the highest expenditure on the technological side is for these institutions, including small banks. There's also a technological race as to how can you quickly reach new customers and how can you offer them something that they will come to expect and can you foresee what they're going to expect. And I use the story of, uh, you know, I compare Blockbuster and uh, Netflix uh, as I talk to these community banks. And, and the truth of the matter is that, you know, there, there are many reasons why Blockbuster failed. But I think the one that we need to focus on is innovation and the fact that when a small little startup in 2000 approached Blockbuster and asked them to partner up, Blockbuster rejected it. And it also rejected an opportunity to buy that startup for $15 million at the time. That startup now has over a $100 billion market cap. It's Netflix and has over 150 million subscribers. And Blockbuster is left with one store in Portland, Oregon. And so as you look at that, we need to be thinking about these small banks and are they thinking ahead? Do they understand what the customer expects? Because the customer doesn't go to a bank saying, I understand you're a small bank. I understand you can't afford to you know, allow me to deposit my check by taking a picture of it. No, they don't do that. They come in, they say, hey, the large money center banks, the Wall Street banks are allowing me to use this technology to do my banking quickly from anywhere. What are you, what are you giving me? So as we look at these community banks, it's, it's the question, how can we get to a point where they can use this technology and not be concerned? From the IIF's perspective, I think that you could promote the use of technology and even information sharing, and if it's possible, technology sharing. You know, recently, the banking regulatory agencies and FinCEN issued a joint guidance on sharing technology for the purposes of Bank Secrecy Act and any money laundering efforts. And I think there is more to be done on just general technology side, sharing for purposes of cybersecurity and even banding together to create some competition to core processors as well in terms of allowing small banks to innovate and providing venues through, you know, their larger brethren. We've talked a lot about innovation, and we'll come back to innovation, but there's a larger point here, and that really is about financial inclusion. So is technology and innovation, or the lack thereof, a barrier in this country to financial inclusion, or is there something else going on, and, and how are we making progress? I think it's one of the barriers for sure. 
And and here's the bottom line. Um, most of the unbanked and underbanked customers that we have in the United States, and the numbers are in the millions, I believe we have a close to 20 million underbanked customers and, and over 7 million who are unbanked. And as you look at those people, most of them have cell phones. And most of those cell phones have smartphone functions and they have Wi-Fi. And so even if they don't have money to pay rent or they don't have money to buy a car, they have a cell phone because that's their way of talking to the world and being connected. And if we're not allowing technology to play in this space to reach more unbanked and underbanked customers, we're going to miss out on an opportunity to include more Americans into the banking fold. And we discussed this previously in our private conversations as well. But, you know, you come from a small community in Kentucky and, and I come from Former Yugoslavia, I came here with $500 and opening up that unsecured credit card, you know, almost 30 years ago for $500. Uh, and I think uh, my limit was, I had $500 on my name and the limit was $300 on this card. Basically brought me into the banking fold. And yes, I, I paid interest on a secured credit card and, and it was difficult to explain back home to my parents that I sent $300 of my $500 to a bank and the bank is now going to hold on to my $300 and I'm going to pay the bank for me to use my $300. Made no sense, right? But that card allowed me to then become a part of the bank population and allowed me to get an unsecured card and a car loan and, uh, and student loans and buy a house. And, you know, I became a happily indebted American. <laughs> I know that feeling. Yes, I've been there and, and still am a little bit probably. But the nature of innovation is disruption. And if you look at the uh, Facebook, their former motto was move fast and break things. And, and I always cite the great architect and artist Bernini, who said no one ever did anything great without first breaking the rules, right? A true innovator. But when banks break rules in terms of innovation, we get ourselves in trouble. So how do we innovate and do so within the confines of the rule book and safety and soundness? How do we balance between being cutting edge but not getting ourselves in trouble? It's a great question, and and I'll go back to your uh, to your quotes. Um, I would actually dare even say that the history of the United States is that of disruption. So as a country, we disrupted the, the status quo and the world order as we knew it at the time. And I think it's important that we maintain that edge, both as a society and a country. And so as we look at these banks innovating and the technology companies innovating in the banking space, even if they're not banks, we need to keep an open mind. Now, we have our, our general mandates of safety and soundness. We have to make sure, as a regulatory body, that our banks are safe and sound and that our financial system is stable. And we also have the consumer protection mandate. We have to protect the consumers and make sure that banks are doing right by their customers. Once we kind of get over those two basic tenets of banking supervision and regulation, the next question is, do we really want our banks to do banking as they did 50 or 100 years ago in a world that's no longer looking like 50 or 100 years ago? And the answer inevitably there is no. We want them to be on the cutting edge and so we need to, on the regulatory side, think of disruption not as a bad thing, but how can we harness that disruption to work in the best possible way to create access to unbanked and underbanked, to allow banks to innovate and com compete effectively in the marketplace with smaller banks, larger banks, credit unions, non-banks, and everybody else. How can we make sure that that small bank in a rural community in Kentucky can survive? I was driving my 13-year-old daughter to a sporting event yesterday, and she looked over at a sign uh, when we stopped at a stoplight and said ATM. And she said, Daddy, what does ATM stand for? What does it mean? And I said, automatic teller machine. And, and I said, they've been around for 50 plus years. She goes, that's a long time. But they don't go to ATMs. They, so think about innovation. There's a whole other new generation that uses a different kind of technology. I guess the larger question is, how can we encourage banks and other financial intermediaries to be on the cutting edge 
but not go too far? How do you how do you monitor what they do? So there are ways. It's a practical question, right? How can we practically get from, you know, it's nice to speak about encouraging innovation, but exactly what are you going to do on the ground? And one of the main reasons why banks don't innovate is for larger banks, it's not even so much the cost. They can invest. They have the resources to invest and they have the economies of scale working to their advantage. So they're willing to develop new technologies. But they do inevitably come to the regulatory question of, will my regulator allow me to do this after I spent millions of dollars developing it? And this is where we have to play a role. And we have to take accountability on the regulatory side of allowing these banks to innovate and doing it so in a smart and prudent way. One of the things we can do is basically team up with these banks, partner up, so we can create labs and projects, and we can work with them doing joint monitoring of how that product or service is functioning and working for, say, six months, and then analyzing data to see are there any potential fair lending violations, any consumer harm, et cetera. And then if the product is truly safe and we're comfortable with it on the regulatory side, allow them to run with it. So we would have kind of a six-month incubation period where we work with the bank on rolling out the product and, you know, monitoring its effect and impact in the marketplace and on consumers. And then if the, if the outcomes are desirable and they're able to satisfy the regulatory questions we usually have on safety and soundness and consumer protection, allow them to run with it. One of the concerns we hear from our member institutions is the ascendancy of the internet platform companies, the ubiquity, their scale, their scope, the technology. And the concern, it's not a level playing field. Do you hear that? And, and how do you respond? And is it something we should be concerned about? I hear it all the time. I'm doing a nationwide listening tour. I'm going to every single state to meet with community bankers and, and understand in farming communities, agricultural communities in general, in some of the rural communities, industrial communities as well. What is it that you're concerned about? And generally, one of the top three concerns is that they are getting competition now, not from traditional sources such as larger banks and credit unions, but they're also getting competition from tech companies that have broad acceptance on the internet and are not regulated as heavily as the FDIC-regulated banks. And so I, I usually hear them out. I listen to what they have to say. I learn something new every single time. But I also see an opportunity for them to utilize that and uh, harness the energy of the fintech companies and the domain that they have and the acceptance that they have and see if there's a way for them to partner up. And from a regulatory perspective, we have to see, is there a safe way for these banks to partner up with fintechs and offer products and services through fintech channels? Because in the end, you know, the responsibility rests with the bank on third-party service providers. And as we look at these tech companies, the bank needs to be comfortable that they can deal with this third-party service provider and hopefully create a partnership that's viable for the bank and the customers. One of the great trends of the past 20 or 30 years has been consolidation. We have fewer and fewer institutions. The industry's changed dramatically here in the United States, the number of banks. I know you have been focused on startups, de novo banks. How's that going? What's the record look like? And what can we do to see new institutions coming into the fold? It's a crucial question, frankly, for community banking in the United States. We are at that proverbial fork in the road where we need to decide, do we want to support community banking in the United States as policymakers in Washington and as a federal regulator? And also, if we're going to support community banking, how are we going to do so? And in the financial crisis, we have lost over 550 banks, and most of them were community banks, and a lot of them were in rural areas. From 2010 until 2016, there were only two de novo charters granted in the United States, including deposit applications. Since January of 2017 until now, we have granted 29 new applications for deposit insurance, and we have about a dozen more pending at this point in time. So we have done a lot to encourage uh, the novel formation 
And I think really the survival of community banking is going to be bound by two things. One is, can they live with the competition and the regulatory burdens and the cost of doing business? And two, is the path to creating the Nova banks in the United States a viable one? And for the longest time, people would tell me when I first joined the agency, people on the outside that, oh, well, you need $20 million to start a new bank in the United States. In a lot of the rural and agricultural communities, it's almost impossible to collect $20 million to create a new bank. And so uh, one of the things that I, I made sure to do as we go around the country is to talk about you don't need $20 million to start a new bank. You need 8% capital based on your business model by the end of year three. We have also held roundtable discussions in each of our regional offices where we brought bank organizers to encourage new bank formation. And we have streamlined our deposit application process so that more work is being done by our staff and the organizers prior to the filing of the application. And then once the application is substantially completed and filed with the FDIC, we have 120 days to respond to it. And the business models for the 29 and then the 12 are in the pipeline. Are they all different? Is there a homogenous business model? Is there something out there that the startups see that the current marketplace isn't serving? Some are more creative than others. Some are very traditional, what we, what we call the plain vanilla banks. And I'll have to tell you, people need to be creative about thinking what innovation is. And, and I'll use an example of a bank um, that's an Amish bank. It's called Bird in Hand Bank, and, and the charter was approved in 2012. This bank realized there were opportunities to serve the Amish community in Pennsylvania. And because the Amish do not use electronic uh, devices and electricity, the bank created a very uh, interesting business model. So talk about innovation for the Amish community. They created the so-called Gelt bus. They take this bus to the farmer's markets. It's basically a bus with an ATM. They have a teller inside, a live teller as well. So they take this bus around from one farmer's market to another to collect cash from the farmers after they sell their goods at the farmer's market that day. And the farmers know exactly when the bus is going to be. They trust the bank, and the bank has been doing superbly well. When we talk about, you know, what is needed, people think about the cutting-edge technology, what's the newest, greatest thing. The Amish community needed the guilt bus, money bus, to go and collect money. That's not necessarily cutting-edge of technology. But somebody thought of a concept out of the box, and they were able to apply it to this community and have a very prosperous bank. So I encourage people to think outside of the box. Think about what have you seen the needs for the communities to be. Think if there's a way to reach, you know, the unbanked, underbanked populations, the immigrant populations. Uh, think about, uh, you know, the trade associations that may not have the tradesmen who, who may not have their own banks. Think outside of the box on how we can create these small banks, because in small town America, they are a crucial lifeblood of the community. And you mentioned your countrywide listening tour. How's that going? What's left? How many more states do you have to go? 20, we are down 24, I think 24 or 25 states we've covered in my first 16 months in the office. I think we'll have 28 by the end of the year. And uh, let me tell you something. Louisiana Purchase was a great idea until you have to travel to some very remote places in the country. But it's, it's crucial for me to do this. There were states where no FDIC chairman has ever been in our 85-year history. And so showing up in, in some places as close as Oklahoma, uh, showing up and just saying, hi, I'm here and I'm here to hear what you have to say. And it matters to me what you have to say about community banking and, and your communities. It goes a long way in both the FDIC's understanding how those banks and those communities function and what their ecosystem looks like, but also goes a long way in just telling them you matter. So I think a number of your comments you've alluded to the shared journey between the industry and the regulatory community and in terms of modernizing some of the regulatory requirements, but also in upskilling. 
And one of the things we've often heard in our research with our members has been the, the human challenge of being able to, to source the new skills for implementation, for embedding. There was a great presentation recently by Megan Green at Harvard that talked about how there's enormous amounts being invested in new technology and often with a, a very substantial lag until that shows up in productivity data. One point she made was that it took 25 years for the PC to have an impact mm-hmm. on productivity. So is there also a shared challenge that the industry and, and your team face in some of this upskilling, the human side of digital transformation? I know you're recruiting yeah. at the moment as, as part of the upskilling here. But you know, do you relate to that as a not only the shared journey with the industry, but also that shared challenge? It is absolutely a shared journey and a shared challenge. And as we look at technology and how technology companies are um, developing their workforce, we understand that our business model, our supervisory model at the FDIC has to change with how the banks are changing their business models. And so maybe no longer the FDIC of the future looks like, you know, a good old examiner who gets trained in reviewing, you know, a four-foot stack of, of paper. Maybe that new FDIC examiner is a data scientist. And maybe that person understands algorithms. And maybe um, our business model here is looking different. And that's something we're exploring now. One of my calls for um, hiring innovators and disruptors, frankly, at the FDIC is exactly that. Tell me what the banking of the future will look like and tell me what our examining force will have to look like to accommodate that future. Thank you very much. You really have broken the mold here. You've done a fabulous job. You continue to do a fabulous job and you're going places and doing things no one else has done. You yourself, you are an innovator. So thank you for spending some time with us here today. We look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you for having me. It, It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Looking ahead on FIT in the coming weeks, we'll continue to look at Facebook's Libra development, especially in the context of the G7 Stablecoins report. We'll have a couple of episodes live from the IIF annual membership meeting, one with Visa's Europe CEO Charlotte Hogg, and another with Hugh Van Stienus on the Bank of England's Future of Finance report. And building on our recent discussion of cloud service providers on episode 48, we'll be looking further at the new Google Anthos development for containering and portability between clouds in discussion with Google Cloud. Please tune in again for those upcoming episodes and also for all of our previous 49 episodes via the IAF website and on all podcast apps. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.